0: Now this very handsome chap here is Nero and in AD 64 there was a huge fire in Rome which caused an awful lot of destruction. Emperor Nero was in charge at the time and rumour had it that it was him that had started the fire. Now he didn't like this too much so he started some counter-rumours that actually it was the Christians who'd done it the Christian community that was to blame. Now in Rome at the time, the Christians were widely despised. They were considered to be troublemakers and they were called pagans because they didn't worship the Roman gods. They didn't bow down to the emperor. But Nero was an exceptionally cruel man. I expect those of you who've studied this um, period in history will know that. And he decided to make an example of the Christians in Rome at that time. He sent them into the arena for the lions to feast on, in front of at the crowds, just purely for entertainment. And even worse, he used some of them as torches, um, as lights for his garden parties. He was an extremely unpleasant man. So it was a brutal time to be a follower of Jesus, and. Whilst the Christians in what we now know as modern Turkey, which is the ones that Peter was writing to, hadn't yet experienced the full force of this sort of persecution, it was probably coming, and they'd have heard about it from their friends in Rome or travellers who'd gone through Rome and travelled round to them. It wasn't good being a Christian at that point in time. So when Peter says in verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, that's the context that he's referring to. It's quite staggering, isn't it? He's not talking about a bit of banter at work that got a bit out of hand. He's not even talking about graffiti going up on the walls of your house or your car tires being slashed a few times. He's talking to people who might very soon be living in daily fear for their lives. Fear of exclusion by their friends and families. Oh no, we don't want anything to do with you. You follow Jesus, don't you? Fear of torture and persecution. We've already heard about some of that. Fear of painful and public execution. These are the people he's writing to. And in the midst of all of this... Peter wants his readers to understand that followers of Jesus are required to live a different life, one that is set apart for God, in spite of the risks that they might be taking. It's quite a big undertaking, isn't it? So, in order to be different, they are to bless those who persecute them. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, who wrote a book in the Old Testament of our Bibles, urging them not to speak lies or evil words. And he reminds them too that the Lord watches all that they're doing. And so he encourages them to seek peace even in the face of great evil. And I wonder too whether Peter had in mind the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they've persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just stop for a minute, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven because it's not the first time people have done this. They did it to my prophets, my special messengers as well. So this is the standard that Peter is setting for his people, his friends to follow. But his words also carry a promise If you live in this way, you too will be blessed because the Lord is listening to you and He is going to deal with those who harm you. God will vindicate, God will deal with it. You don't need to worry about that, just leave it to God. As I was thinking about this whole provocative living thing, I wondered if it might be an idea to define what provocative actually means, because it can have a, a whole host of different meanings. So, obviously, I went to Google, because that's the place you can find everything out. And the Cambridge Online Dictionary said the following. He, they defined it as, number one, causing a thought about interesting subjects. And number two, causing an angry reaction, usually, usually intentionally. So, provocative living in those terms then, is living in a way that will cause people to stop and ask why you do what you do in the way that you do it. I'm really pleased with that phrase because it sounds a bit like St. Paul because he was always using long words and things. Anyway, so it's about why you do what you do in the way that you do it. Usually in this country that sort of thing would take the form of a question and it's often friendly and curious. I expect some of you students who've recently done the Wonder Week will have had quite a few questions. And normally they'll just be, why are you sleeping in a marquee at night to make sure it's safe? What's that all about? Who is this Jesus? What's going on? More rarely, we might get an angry reaction. And often, we'll be able to work out why that reaction was a bit hostile. Perhaps it's something to do with something that's been in the news recently. We can usually work it out. In this country, at this present time, there's unlikely to be any real persecution. It's much more likely to take the form of um, name-calling, jokes at our expense, that sort of thing. It can be unpleasant, and it can get quite bullying and nasty, but it's generally not life-threatening. But for the Christians that Peter is writing to, it was a very, very different issue. And that's what makes his instruction in verse 15 quite remarkable, really. He says, in your hearts, revere or set aside Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So what he's not saying is, I'd advise you to keep a bit of a low profile at the moment. Things are hotting up in Rome, so I should just keep it low key. He's not telling them that it might be sensible to stop meeting for a few weeks until things settle down and the danger passes. He's telling them to be ready to answer any questions that come their way. Not belligerently, but gently and respectfully. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? And of course, underlying all of this is the assumption that these people will be living such different lives, such provocative lives, that their neighbours and their work colleagues will want to know why, and they might start asking questions. And so, of course, having an answer ready is going to be crucial. They don't want to be caught on the hop. So, I can imagine them having a bit of a meal together and rehearsing some of this, perhaps doing a bit of role play to help them get their answers ready. So, it might be something like, so, Bob asked me the other day why I don't go to the temple with him anymore. Um, What do I say? What what can I say to him? Can you give me some ideas? And, And so on. And they would probably have tried things out, I can imagine. And Peter's quite clear here, too, that they need to be measured in what they say. So they're not to dilute the gospel down. They're not to try and make it a bit more acceptable so they don't offend people. They're to be respectful in what they say, and they're to act and speak in a way that, so that the name of Christ is never ever brought into disrepute. And he then goes on to remind them that Jesus Christ is the supreme example of how to cope with persecution. It always comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? Always. He is the firm foundation that we build on. But he is the one who endured more than any human being has ever had to endure. And don't forget that Peter the Apostle had witnessed his persecution at first hand. Because this is the same Peter who's writing this letter, who was one of Jesus's three closest friends. Peter is the one who walked on the water, who was so excited by Jesus walking on the water to him that he said, can I do it? So Jesus said, yeah, sure. So he hopped out the boat and walked towards him and then it went a bit wrong and got a bit wet. But that was Peter. He was there when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, being Peter, he was a bit spontaneous and he got his sword out and chopped someone's ear off and it didn't end well. But Jesus was there, so he sorted it out. And then Jesus is taken for trial, and Peter followed. But of course, he's the one, too, who denied Jesus three times. Around that fire in the courtyard, he said, no, I don't know who you're talking about. And then it's possible that he was one of the disciples or the people who watched the crucifixion from a safe distance and then slunk away because it was just too dangerous to be there. He was too scared. But he was one of the disciples who was amongst the first at the tomb that first Easter morning. And he's the one who was reinstated by Jesus at that barbecue they had on the beach. So this man Peter, this apostle who knew Jesus firsthand, has reason to be certain that this Jesus that he's talking about isn't issuing commands from some safe distance up there somewhere. He's saying... that we need to put up with with persecution. But he's saying it from a place of understanding. He does know what he's talking about. Jesus went through so much himself. But he's also, Peter's also talking about the saviour who died for us, who took all our sin on himself, who endured the persecution and a cruel death, even though he had done absolutely nothing to deserve it. And he's talking about the Son of God who beat death and who rose triumphant that first Easter morning. What we symbolize as someone goes down into the water and comes back up again. You beat death. Jesus did that for us. And so that's why Peter can be absolutely certain that it's worth suffering for being a follower of Jesus. He endured so much for us. And We're so precious to him that he will be with us whatever hardship we have to go through, even death. Now we commented at the start, or towards the beginning, that there are relatively few instances in the UK, in this country, of outright religious persecution for being a Christian. But that is not the case for large parts of our world today. Now, Open Doors is a Christian organisation and one of our mission partners here that monitors the persecution of Christians worldwide um, in particular and lobbies governments for changes to policies and their laws and regulations around Christians and freedom of worship. And they keep a watch list of the top one hundred and fifty countries around the world where Christians are being persecuted. These are some of the numbers that are involved. This is what happened in the course of one year. This is 2019, so last year. And these um, are concerning the top 50 out of those 150 countries, okay? So your top 50 countries last year, these are the figures that were involved. 245 million Christians in the world experience high levels of persecution for their choice to follow Jesus. So that's one in nine Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. 4,136 Christians were killed for faith related reasons in the top 50 countries. 2,625 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned in those top 50 countries. 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked last year. There were 11 countries that scored in the extreme level for their persecution of Christians. And Five years ago, only North Korea was in that group. In five years, it's gone from one to 11. And... North Korea has been top of the list for 18 consecutive years. It is the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Doors have also produced a short video, it's just under three minutes long, to highlight some of these issues. And I hope that's what we're going to watch now, Zach.
1: Around the world, the body of Christ is under attack. A congregation forced out in Algeria. Oh my God. Bible's burned in southern India. A Christian's home destroyed in Vietnam. And in China, an unregistered church is demolished. Just in the top 50 countries on the 2020 World Watch List, so many Christians are beaten, attacked, tormented, and killed for their faith in Jesus. In fact, right now, more than 260 million Christians live in areas of high persecution. That's one in eight Christians worldwide. Each year, the World Watch List tracks persecution against Christians around the world to help us understand what's happening in the global church and how we can pray and support our suffering family. As I stand here in China, I can tell you that behind the numbers is a story that challenges and inspires my faith. China is number 23 on this year's world watch list, but that number doesn't tell the whole story. I wanted to find out the truth behind the ranking. I've been all over China and I can tell you that it's an incredible country with breathtaking beauty, an amazing culture and a history second to none. But the church here tells a different story. Christians are increasingly being pushed underground in China. Pastors are being detained. Churches are being closed. And people who have a personal faith in Jesus are being watched using technology that was never available before. The church is being squeezed in China. But sometimes when the church is squeezed, it grows. And China is just one country on the 2020 World Watch List. Christians around the world are being pressured, targeted, and attacked. The Christians in the top 50 countries on this year's list may be suffering, but we can stand with them in prayer and support. We invite you to join us in 2020 as we stand with our sisters and brothers around the world. Open Doors is serving in over 60 countries around the world, standing with the persecuted church. We'd love for you to join us. We are one church, one family.
0: That's quite thought provoking isn't it? It really makes you think. And that's the reality that so many of our fellow Christians around the world are facing, the people who say the same creed that we do. Think about verse fifteen from our passage again. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I wonder how they're dealing with that verse. I wonder what their advice is to the fr- the friends of theirs who are in such hostile environments. I wonder what you're thinking now as you consider their reality compared to yours. Now, this is not about condemnation, because I'm asking myself exactly the same question. And I sincerely hope that we won't ever face the sort of persecution they face in North Korea or parts of China and so on. But I wonder how prepared we are to answer that question from when people find out we go to church, when we've been to a baptism, we talk about it tomorrow. Are we confident that we could tell our stories of how we got to know Jesus? So if someone comes up to us and says, why on earth do you want to go to church? What is that baptism thing all about? You could say, can I tell you my story about how I came to know Jesus and what it means to me? And for myself, I wonder how ready I really am to have conversations with people. If I pop into the shop around the corner and forget I'm wearing my collar, and they ask me, Are you a vicar? What do I say? Do we live in provocative ways? Are we so loving and compassionate and humble towards other people that it sparks debate? And when we do face questions, how do we react? Do we do it with gently and with respect? Or do we brush the questions off abruptly? And what do we do if someone becomes really antagonistic about what we believe? Do we launch an attack, all guns blazing, or do we just clam up and slip away a bit embarrassed? That's my preferred option, if I'm really honest. How do we help others and ourselves to deal with answering these questions? Do we take opportunities perhaps to chat through our story in our small groups or our prayer triplets, or just to deal with it, to work out how to say it? Practicing on each other is always a really good way to to start. Because sometimes questions come that take us by surprise. Our old next door neighbour, who's gone now, but Walter, his name was, bless him. He was an atheist and a very um, sort of loud-mouthed atheist. And he knew what we believed. And he said to me one day, what's this all about church and Jesus then? Why do you believe in that stuff? I mean, you're very nice people, but you're completely brainwashed, aren't you? And I was like... Oh, no, probably not, but um, I didn't really know what to say, if I'm honest. So I talked about football because that was his other favourite subject, and we, we got off the subject. And don't forget as well that if you're asked a question and you don't know the answer to it, saying, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that, but I know someone that I can ask, i.e., Jonathan the vicar, um, that's my, always my opt out, um, then I'll get back to you with it. That's fine, you can say that. That's honest and acting with integrity. And of course, You could always invite people to come to church with you. It's not as scary as it sounds. So, as we come into land, I wonder what it would look like if we decided to take verse 15 as our life verse. To think through carefully what we would say and how we would say it. Because Peter is quite certain that this is the only way to live. He's certain that this is the way that will impact people with the message of this gospel. And he's convinced that by engaging respectfully with those we question, we will see lives changed by the Holy Spirit. And we will grow in confidence as we do it. It won't become quite so scary after a while. And towards the end of this passage, he reminds us that eventually there won't be anybody in heaven or earth who doesn't bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. Peter knew Jesus, he'd eaten with the resurrected Christ, he'd been commissioned to serve the church. He knew that the power of God through Jesus was greater than anything that Nero could throw at them. And he knew that one day everybody would know his friend Jesus as Lord. So provocative living. Living as a follower of Jesus in a way that makes people ask questions is not easy. In some countries around the world it's deadly. We've seen that tonight. But it's always worth it. Because Jesus has promised that he will never leave us. He's shown us that death is not the end for those who believe in him. He has inspired countless of his followers down through the centuries to face persecution and even death with courage and with deep faith. I wonder how we're living for him today. We're going to take some time just to pray. Often at this point in our church services, um, we get people standing, which I will do in a minute, and we're just going to listen to God. If you're not used to this, just take a moment to chill, but just listen to something that God might be saying for you. So let's stand together. So I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. And then we'll just take a minute and a half or so, just in silence, listening to God. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are the way and the truth and the life. Thank you that you are worth living for. And that you go with us wherever we need to go or you call us to. So now, Lord, in the silence, I pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fill this space with your Spirit and that you would meet people here tonight. So let's just stay silent.